Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Well, we have returned to the book of Daniel, and today we look at chapter 8 of Daniel. For the past three weeks, we have gone on a short side trip regarding the rapture of the church. Now, these lessons are included in this series and can be found on our website. But for today, we look at a lesson that class teacher Doug Brady has titled, the ram and the goat. We will look at the first eight verses of the eighth chapter of Daniel. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning with coffee and donuts from 9 until 9.15, followed at 9.15 a.m. with our lesson. You are invited to join over 125 people should you be in our area. We will welcome you with open arms. Well, Doug is at the podium ready to begin, so let's go into the classroom of the Believer's Bible class. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Just so everybody knows, you were, we've been studying the book of Daniel. We looked at chapter 7 and the panorama of history, both past, present, and future, that are included in that chapter. And we had the question, will we as believers have to face the tribulation or any part of it? Will we have to deal with the Antichrist? Now, as a result of that issue or question, we studied the rapture for three, seri for three Sundays to look at what God's promises were and how now... Did we do an exhaustive study of the rapture? The answer is no. If that is something you want, on the back of the notes, it has our uh, website, and there is like, now Jerry, could you help me remember, is it seven or nine, nine lessons on the rapture? Uh, in that one, we go in depth in the second Thessalonians and what it's really saying. We talk about the promise of the rapture in Revelation 3.10. Uh, we talk about a number of other things. We talk about passages in the scripture that people want to say is about the rapture, but it's Matthew 24 and 25, and it's not about the rapture. It's about Israel, and you can't put Israel together with the church, so those lessons are available. It should be obvious to everyone that we're going to move forward into chapter 8 of of uh, Daniel. The first lesson on chapter 8, maybe even the second one will appear uh, 9, but I want you to understand that uh, in the Bible there are ways of teaching us that are called types or prefigurements. Can anybody give me an example of a type? Bonnie. Joseph appears to be a type. I think a better example might be what you find in Exodus, where the snakes came and started biting the children of Israel uh, because of their sin. And then they turned to God. And what did he tell Moses? Take a bronze rod with a cross staff put a, a bronze picture or figure of that serpent on it and put it up on the hill. And if you looked at it, believing that God would heal you, what would happen? You'd be healed. You'd be saved. Now, because those serpents, when they bit you, you died. You understand that that is a picture. Now, how do we know for certain that that how can I know for certain that that's a type of Christ? Well, all you have to do is look in John 3. And what did Jesus say to Nicodemus? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. But you don't carry type farther. You don't say, oh, 
Well, now it's obvious Jesus is a snake. No, you don't do that. And you have to, to look at it for the, the picture. You know, when Moses struck the stone in the wilderness at Rephidim, and the water came out to save the people because they were dying of thirst. God said, you strike them, you strike it once. In the same way, it's a picture of the Messiah who's going to be the sacrifice. He has to die how many times? Once and once alone. Now, some are going to say, oh, no, that's talking about a rock, so that must be Peter. He's the rock. No, that's not the case. It was picturing the sacrificial death of Jesus. But you got to, there's going, I'm telling you that, because there's going to be some types in chapter 8, and the type is going to be about the Antichrist. And you're going to see a type of the Antichrist. Does that mean that the Antichrist is Syrian? No, it's a type of what the Antichrist is going to be, and we need to see that. Now, let's also review back, because I want you to, as we go through this book, to get a picture in your mind of the trip that we have taken. And by that I mean, I want you to see pictures for Daniel. Now, I'm not going to put them up on the screen, but I want you to think about this. If you take a picture in your mind of sumptuous feast and a glass of wine, and then you take a red circle and you draw it around with a red slash down the middle, that's the picture of chapter one. We're not going to eat the king's food. If you take a picture in your mind of gigantic statue made out of four kinds of metal with clay and iron feet, that's a picture of chapter two, the statue. If you take a picture in your mind of a fiery furnace with people in it, that's a picture of chapter three. In chapter four, if you see a picture in your mind of a tree, a massive tree, but one that has been fallen, chopped down and is down, that's a picture of what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in chapter 4. Now, if you see some hand writing on the wall, you take a picture of that in your mind. Chapter 5, the handwriting on the wall. You see in your mind a picture, and you save that picture of a den of lions with an old man in there in the middle. That's chapter 6. Then you have in your mind the picture of four beasts, a lion, a bear, a leopard, and a terrible beast that's unidentifiable, that's chapter 7. And you look at those pictures, and now you have it. In your mind now for chapter 8, you should see the ram and the goat. There's going to be a ram and a goat, and they are going to represent two of those four, two of those six empires it talks about in chapter 2 and talks about in chapter 7. Now, I also want us to review for just a minute the visions. Now, the first vision was in chapter 2. It was of that image. Who was the vision given to? Not Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar. Then, you're right, Daniel had to be shown the vision so he could explain it. Came to Nebuchadnezzar, but where did the explanation come? God gave it directly to Daniel. All right. The next vision in chapter 7 of the four beasts, who did it come to? Daniel. How was it explained to him? An angelic being. Does it tell us who it is? No, just an angelic being spoke to him and explained it. Actually, Daniel went up in his vision to this angelic being saying, tell me about this. And of course, he wanted to know about the terrible beast because that was the one he was the least sure of what it meant. Now, today we're going to have a vision. It's going to come directly to Daniel. And we are going to see, want to know, who is it that explains this vision to Daniel? And who is it who instructs the explainer to explain? Does that make sense? Are you following me? Who explains it to Daniel? And who gives the explainer the instructions to do that? Because it will be very important. Now, we're also going to see some of the things about how this chapter is attacked. Because if you remember, we've looked at this a number of times, but it's important to remember. If you go to an Old Testament class or any kind of similar class like that in almost every university in this country, almost any seminary in this country, 
When are they going to tell you the book of Daniel was written? 167 B.C. Not in the 6th century, 539 backward, 536 backward, when Daniel lived and wrote this book. But they're going to tell you some pseudonym uh, was used. It was somebody else. It wasn't the real Daniel who wrote it. Now, why, what is their main reasoning for why Daniel couldn't have written this book and therefore they had to have somebody in the second century B.C. to write it? It's too accurate. It is too accurate. Nobody in the sixth century B.C. could have known these things. No human being could. And they are right. No human being could have known those things unless they were told by God. But they deny divine intervention. And this is, these books are not inspired. They're just historical works. And if you listen to A&E or Secrets of the Bible or all of those things on those channels, they're all trying to con you. They're all trying to lie to you. But one of the things that you need to be ready for, what happens when a son or a daughter or a grandson or a granddaughter comes to you and says, Grandpa, they're telling me this on these professors from Harvard and Yale on this uh, secrets and treasures of the Bible, is that really true? And if you say, no, that's not true, they're going to say, why? You know how children, a lot of times, that's when their favorite question, why? And because is not the answer. You need to be able to give them the answer. So today, you can open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 8, And we have been looking at this, and this vision in chapter 8 is going to positively identify the second and third empires of Daniel chapter 2 and the second and third empires of Daniel chapter 7. It's this identification that causes liberal scholars so much panic. Now, one other thing that we have to mention, because when we look at chapter 1 of Daniel Eight, it's going to say in the third year of Belshazzar, of Belshazzar. Now, that is a time period that is before chapter 6. That is a time period that's before chapter 5. You see, chapter 7 and 8 come before. If I was going to put them in chronological order, 1 through 4, chapters 1 through 4, chapters 7 and 8 then chapters 5 and 6, then chapters 9 through 12. Now, why is it that it would be in that order? Tom, what is the reason that these chapters are in this order, especially because of what he does with chapter 2 through chapter 7? It's a chiasm. That's not an Occidental or Western way of writing things. To us, it's confusing. But to the Oriental mind... It's normal. It's something that should be expected. And they're going to put what's in chapter 2 and chapter 7. They're going to put what's in chapter 3 and chapter 5. They're going to put what's in chapter 4 and chapter 5. I I left out. I meant 6 instead of 5 before. But what I'm saying is that is the way it's going to be. So we look at verse 1 of chapter 8, and I want you to notice something. It says, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. In Daniel chapter 8, in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. This is subsequent to chapter 7, right? That's the only other vision that appeared to him as of this time. Now, notice he gives the exact date here. This is during the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, as we look at this passage, this would look like, well, this is just a little transitional passage. It doesn't really mean anything. So what? Let's keep moving. That's wrong. There's no passage in the scripture like that. So before we get in depth here, let's ask God to bless our study. Father, as we come and speak with you today, we ask you to open up the first eight verses of this passage. Help us to understand what it is that you are trying to tell to us, what you want us to know. I pray that you will enlighten our hearts. Most importantly, Father, I pray that I not be the teacher today, but your Holy Spirit. 
I pray, Father, further that if there's anyone here who is not certain that the Holy Spirit is indwelling them to be their teacher, that they would come afterwards and talk to me and let me share with them the very simple way they can change that and have the Holy Spirit indwelling them. But, Father, as we do this, help us to push away any distractions from our minds, any thoughts of other things. Help us to think just about what you want to show us today, the reasons that things happen. I pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, notice something could... I wouldn't want to get in too much trouble right at the start. Could the Holy Spirit have prompted Daniel to just say this? In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar, the king, a vision appeared to me subsequent to the one that appeared to me previously. Couldn't he have said that and gotten basically the same meaning? Yeah, he didn't need to put his name Daniel in there. But the Holy Spirit chose specifically to put his name Daniel in there. Why? Because the Holy Spirit can look all the way down into the future and they can see what Truett Seminary down in Waco is teaching their students. See, I I knew I'd get in trouble right at the start. (laughs) And be that as it may, you know, you say, well, are you against Baylor University? No, my university, I don't even think has a seminary. And if it does... It's not a seminary because they don't believe in God. But the fact is that that was once ours and is no longer. And it's a shame that Satan seems to keep winning so frequently. And yet we know that the more Satan wins, the closer we are to going. Now, you're right. You're right. Say that again. The hotter hell gets for him too. Yes. Let's burn him and burn him quick. But be that as it may, there's some other people. Now I really get in trouble. So Daniel is there. Daniel is saying, don't listen to any of these people. I wrote this book and I wrote it in the 6th century B.C. Now, is there anybody who maybe has more authority than Daniel to say when he wrote it? I can think of one. Jesus. What does it say in Matthew? He speaks of Daniel 9, 24 through 27, specifically 27, the abomination of desolation. And Jesus Christ said, Daniel wrote this book. And there's no question about it. Now, let's move on because I want you to see the vision in chapter 8 occurs about two years after the vision in chapter 7. This timing information at first sounds insignificant and unimportant, but it is. It coincides with the year in which Cyrus, king of Persia, really severed his partnership with Antisegus, the Mede. In other words, there's things going on outside of Babylon that, that the Persians are now taking a position of prominence in the Medo-Persian government and and coalition, if, we, if you speak. And so that is occurring. And it seems much more probable then that Daniel had access to the writings of Isaiah and of Jeremiah. Now, do we know whether he has access to the writings of Jeremiah? Not exactly. No, I, I would say Jeremiah was written closer to in the latter 600s. And Isaiah's written from 720 maybe to 740 B.C. But does he have access to Jeremiah? Obviously, in Daniel, what is it, 9-1, he's reading the book of Jeremiah, you see there in chapter 2. He's reading it. Now, Daniel's in a prominent position right now. And one of the things it doesn't tell you here in this particular section of these books is that Daniel is building a library. And he's building a library for that those who follow after him can study the scriptures. Where, how did the Magi know to look for a star in the east? Because Daniel's library and those who were passing down the information explained that to him and the importance of it. He has Isaiah 2, I believe, and he is therefore talking about this. Why? 
because Isaiah, 200 years before the event, specifically says, Cyrus will be the one who rescues my people from Babylon. Calls them by name. That's another reason that the liberals say there's three Isaiahs, you see. Three. Uh, the two really aren't, the second and third really aren't Isaiah. They're just writing parts of that book because Isaiah couldn't have written this 200 years before. You know, their reasoning just gets really darn old to me. In fact, let me, look at, let me get you to look at it. In Isaiah 44, starting in verse 28, here's what he says. It is I who says, and this he's, he's quoting God, it is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will perform my desire. And he declares of Jerusalem and she will be built. And the temple, your foundation will be laid. And it goes on down. Now, when he wrote this, was there a city of Jerusalem in full force in effect? Yes. Was there a temple in full force in effect? Yes. The Babylonians haven't destroyed it yet. They did that in 605 to 5986 BC. So they're looking at this, but well, here's saying he's going to rebuild it. Well, it doesn't need to be rebuilt, but it will. It will. And so now Daniel's living in Babylon. Belshazzar is king. It's the third reign. The kingdom probably won't be lost to Belshazzar for another eight years or so. And some people say that Babylon will be overthrown in the same year of this vision. Others say, no, it'll be 551. It doesn't really matter. All we know is it's following after. Now, where was this vision set? It was set in Susa. I looked in the vision, verse 2, and while I was looking, I was in the capital of Susa, which is in the province of Elam. And I looked in this vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Now, where is Susa? If you look here, you will find that Susa's down here. It's 250 miles southeast of Babylon. What in the world is Daniel doing there? Well, he doesn't say. But he's down there in Susa. And I want you to notice this is in the Babylonian province of Elam. It's not in the, the province of the capital. It's a different province. Notice this is the area of Persia, and here's Media, right in here. Now, let me tell you something that the people on A&E won't tell you. And that is this, that Susa was in Elam in the 6th century B.C., but when the Persians came in, within the next, say, 12 years, they changed things up. And Darius the Mede was king, a member of Babylon. Susa was put into a Persian province, no longer in the province of Elam. And so for the next 400, 500 years, that's where it was. How would a person writing in 167 know that? Answer is they wouldn't. But a person writing in the sixth century would know that Susa at this time was in the province of Elam. Do you see that? That's why that is important to see. And Susa is referred to as a citadel. It's kind of like a fortress, and that's where it is. Now, this canal is really using the word river, but it's cut between two existing rivers, and therefore it's man-made. It'd be a man-made river, and so technically it'd be a canal in those days. And the names of those two rivers, which are hard to pronounce, are there in your notes. So why would God have have this setting of this vision in Susa. Well, he's setting it up because the vision is going to be dealing with the Medo-Persian Empire. And this is a place where the Medo-Persian Empire is going to call their own. In fact, Ryrie will tell you that Susa is one of the main capitals of Media Persia. Xerxes built a magnificent palace there uh, when he became king. And his son, Artaxerxes, he would spend a great deal of time in Susa. And Susa was a very favored place of the Persians. Now, let's look at something that I want you to see. This vision is coming, but look at verse 16 of chapter 8. Yes, we're jumping ahead, but I want you to see this because I think it's important. Daniel is seeing this vision and he says, and I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Ulai. 
Now, what is he saying there? We got to unpack this as we go. Where is this man who's talking? He's standing in the middle of this uh, Ulai Canal on the water. He's between the banks. All right. And he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. Is Gabriel someone who is important? There are some people that say he is one of only two archangels referenced in the scripture. Now, when a message is important, who does God send? When he needed to tell Zacharias that you're going to have a son whose name you're going to call John, and he's going to be the one who prepares the way for the Messiah, who did he send? When he needed to tell Mary and explain to her that you are going to, I know you're a virgin, but you're still going to be pregnant because the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and the Father is going to plant in your womb the Son of God. Who did he send? Gabriel. When the message is important, he sent Gabriel. Zacharias told Gabriel, well, now listen, sir, this really can't be happening. I'm too old. My wife's too old. And Gabriel got mad. And he said, I stand in the presence of God Almighty, waiting to do his bidding. You're not going to say another word till that child is born. And the first word out of your mouth better be John. And that's exactly what happened. You see, the most prominent servant of a king would stand in his presence, ready to do his bidding whenever he had to be there where he could see him so that the king could simply make a motion with his head or his eyes or some other understandable code word or phrase or action that they may have had. And so you go on and it says, so he came near where I was standing and I was frightened. And he starts explaining these things to Daniel. Now, here's something I want to ask you. Who's speaking in this verse? The man in the middle of the canal, right? And he's talking to whom? Gabriel. What is he doing? He's commanding Gabriel to do something, right? Who has the authority to do that? There's only one person. That's right. Our Lord Jesus Christ is telling. He's there in the midst of this vision, and he's telling Gabriel what to tell Daniel or that he's to explain to Daniel. And I wanted you to see that. Now, we need to stop back here and just, I thought it might be an appropriate time to talk about angels for just a second. As I study the scriptures, and I haven't done an exhaustive study, but as I've studied them, I find that there's basically three groups or types of angels. There's the third group, the lower group. I just call them angelic beings, general angels. And they do whatever God wants them to do. They can appear as a man or not as a man. Two of them maybe appeared with Jesus Christ when he was talking to Abraham before he sent them down, before Jesus sent them down to Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, there's a second group, which is a little higher. They're called seraphim. Seraphim. They are interesting. They have a head that appears like us, body that appears like us, or let's say the resurrected body of Jesus. They have legs and feet. But they also have six wings. And they are about praising God. You remember in Isaiah chapter 6, when he shows up in the throne room of God, there were seraphim over the throne saying, holy, holy, holy. It's interesting. They don't say love, 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 or justice, 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 holy, holy, holy. That's the important aspect of God. That's why it talks about the beauty of holiness. Now, there is another group, a group that's scary. I'm going to say. They're called cherubim. Now, I have it done as an exhaustive study of the book of Ezekiel as Damaris has. But correct me if I'm wrong, because I may get one of the faces wrong. If you looked at a seraphim, you would not see a side on either of their head, like you'd see a side of my head. You wouldn't see a back of their head. On one of the four sides of their, fa- of their head is a face of a human being. On another side of their head, there's a face of an eagle. On the other side, there's a face of a bull. And on the back side, it's a face of a lion or a bear? A lion. 
So they have four faces. You see somebody like that, it would really be scary. Now, it's interesting. In Ezekiel, it talks to some degree about their locomotion. And it's just, they can change directions at will, going wherever, which face they pick, so to speak. Now, I'm really going to get in trouble. It looks just like the movement of some of those UFOs that we have been seeing. Well, we don't need to get into that. (laughs) Now, there's something else that you have heard, and that is an archangel. An archangel is not a type of a group. An archangel is a position, a a position of command. You can have archangels who are commanding the third group. You could have an archangel that's commanding the second or the first group. Now, we know for certain one archangel, his name is Michael. He has a number of positions that he's in charge of, but one of the things, he's supposed to be the protector of Israel. Others would say, yes, we have a second archangel referenced in the scripture, and that's Gabriel. I'm not exactly sure on that. I'm not sure that Gabriel is an archangel or not. So, oh, we've learned that forever. I know I've been taught that forever, but I'm not sure that that's right anymore. And I'm not going to tell you something I'm not certain of. But Julie would say, well, if you'd listen carefully with me, you would know for certain that he's not. But be that as it may, what I wanted to, to explain to you is this. There's all kinds of rubbish, I'm going to say, for sake of not using a more coarser term, about archangels, archangels. Mohammed claimed that an archangel gave him the information from which he wrote the Quran. Some claim that, it's, that Muhammad claimed that he was talking to Gabriel. Well, if he was talking to someone who told him his name was Gabriel, he was a liar, the angel was. And the angel didn't come from God, it came from somewhere else. I hope you're following me on that and understand where I'm saying. Now, Jewish tradition will tell you, oh, there's more than than two. There's four. They add a guy by the name of Raphael, whose name means that God heals. They want to claim he was the angel who stirred the water at the pool of Bethesda. And he is a, and then a, a fourth one named Uriel, whose name means God is my light. And he was one of the archangels of the post-exilic rabbinic tradition. Now, I'm not buying that. Why? Because it's not in the scriptures. If it's not in the Bible, then I'm not going to accept it. It may be a, a thought. It may be a, an idea or a theory. But I'm not going to accept it. Now, you know, you look at the Mormons. And they're going to come up with a whole bunch of, of others. You look at this... Uh, book that is in some Catholic Bibles, the Revelation of Estrus. It comes up with nine such archangels, and I don't buy it. But you need to be aware that there are different levels of angelic beings and different positions. Now, yes? I'm, I'm almost compelled every time I, I read this, I think about a certain thing uh, that... In the throne room, these cherubims, seraphims are flying. Seraphim are flying. The thing that strikes me is when they are singing, I guess it's singing, holy, holy, holy. Um, I heard an an explanation of when Jesus said, barely, barely, I tell you. But when when something is said three times in a row, I was explained, or I think it is, Holy, holy, holy means infinite. When it's received three times, am I wrong about that? Or no, I think... I hardly even care about these guys at all, but when I hear holy, I can't get that out of my head. And you shouldn't. And the reason why is this. There's two reasons why they're doing that three times. One, to speak of the triunity of, their, of the one they're claiming is holy. And the three part, uh, the three in one. And then it also speaks of many, some of his central attributes, one of which is his eternality, because he's complete at three. And it also speaks, though, of his purity. And those things, I think, come from the triplication 
of that. And so it is important, I think, Kim, to focus on that. Anybody else have a question on that? All right. I want you to look at something here before we go on, because we are now going to talk about empires. We're going to talk, focus on two. That is Medo-Persia and Greece. But, so I'm going to start out talking about Babylon. What were the reasons that Babylon was overrun by Persia? Now, here again, when I say that, who's responsible for overrunning Babylon with Persia? The Lord God Almighty. He is in control. He lifts up kings and he puts down. You can find that in uh, Daniel chapter 2 when Daniel is praying and says that. But what would be the reasons that God would have for doing away with Babylon? Judgment for what they did to Israel and pride. If you look, remember in chapter 4 what Nebuchadnezzar said, and the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence to the might of my power and the glory of my majesty? Can you imagine a more prideful statement than that? But then you look at his grandson, a guy named Belshazzar, in chapter 5, verse 1, where he says, Belshazzar, the king, held a great feast for a thousand of his nobles, and he was drinking wine in the presence of the thousand. Now, at this time, he was surrounded by the Persians. He says, I don't care. They can't do anything to me. Babylon is impregnable. So we're going to have a party, and we're going to have a thousand there. And when Belshazzar had tasted the wine, he gave orders to bring out the gold and silver vessels which Nebuchadnezzar's father had taken out of the temple of Jerusalem. That king, I mean, that God can't do anything. Oh, yeah? That night, you're going to be required to give your life or to answer with your life. But that's what they did, and they partied. Now, you're going to see the same thing. And I want to go to this because I don't want to miss this. Uh, if you look in Daniel chapter 8, starting in verse 3 and 4, I want us to focus, and I know I'm going a little bit out of order, and Jerry will take care of me. Look at the, at the bottom of it. No other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue him from his power, but he did as he pleased and magnified himself. How does God respond to that? Greece is coming, and they're going to take you over. And we know who the original king of Greece was. You're going to see the same thing in his life. God will only allow arrogance and pride for so long. Now, think about this just a second. Nebuchadnezzar came in around 605 B.C. and was out around 536 B.C. Didn't even last 100 years. The Persians came in around 536 B.C., and the Greeks came around 333. So we're talking about, what, 220 years, something like that? Each time, pride did them in. It's going to do the same thing for Alexander. Hold on a second. Should we have any concern about what is going on in our nation today and the arrogance and the anti-God sentiment, how long, I mean, you think about it a second, God used Babylon, they weren't a Christian nation, God used them, they were not a nation of believers, God used Persia, they were not a Christian nation, they were not a, a nation of believers, God used Greece, they were not, God created America as a Christian nation, and has used it to send more missionaries throughout the world than any other nation that's ever existed. And now we are doing the same thing. It would seem to me that would anger him more than what Babylon did, what Persia did, what Alexander did, what Rome did. Mark. You, know, Doug, you mentioned something earlier about they were having this feast and a thousand nobles while they were basically surrounded by their enemy. And uh, it makes me think in the modern days, if I could use that, you know, if he was not concerned about being surrounded by the enemy, so subconsciously he thought maybe he could still win this thing, just as in the last days of World War II when Hitler was in the bunker and the Russians were in Berlin, he was still calling out divisions to attack that no longer existed. He still thought he could win 
when the Russians were in Germany. Yeah, so a depraved society is incapable of seeing truth. I'm glad you're not making an analogy of uh, the United States right now in relation to the CCP. And, uh, but let's move on. Let's go back to verse 3. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a ram, which had two horns, was standing in front of the canal. And now the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other, with the longer one coming up last. Now understand something here. He's not seeing a picture He's seeing a video, okay? Now he's having to describe it in words, and that's hard to do. But what's happening, he sees this ram. Two horns are growing out of this ram. Looks something like this. But one horn grows longer and larger than the other. The horns are the position of power in a ram. Have you ever seen those pictures on Nature Channel as those two rams come running in full of testosterone and hitting each other? I mean, it's massive. It, it, it would kill a human being if they suffered that impact. Gary. Yeah, I was just wondering, uh, on this vision that he's having in the, in the third year of Belshazzar, whatever his name is, um, so right now he's having this vision. He's still in the time of Babylon. How long does... Uh, the scholars are very different. Some people say it happened in the same year he saw this. Others, 12 years. I think Ryrie says eight. And probably going to go with Ryrie on this one. So, now, we see this. I want you to look at, this ram starts attacking. And I want you to see this from, from that point of view. And he, it says he butts or attacks westward, northward, and southward. All right, here's the empire, and here's this Persia and Media over here. The, this was the part that was part of this empire before he took Babylon. But when he comes in and takes Babylon, he's going this way, this way, and this way. Why? If you, it's interesting, if you look at the history and the recordings of Persian Empire, what did they want? They wanted the Mediterranean Sea. They wanted the waterways. They wanted the ports. They wanted the commerce of the Mediterranean. And that's what they're doing. They're attacking that way. Now, they become this vast empire, and they last for like 220 years, but then they start to magnify themselves. I want you to see chapter 7 of Daniel, and it says, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. In this vision, Persia is not the ram, it's a bear. What does it say about this bear? And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear, and it was raised up on one side. Now, it's interesting to see this because... What it means is that one side is higher and bigger than the other. It's like one side is strong. Have you ever seen something happen, say, to a man, and he, he has one side, his arm is very strong, but something has happened to his other arm, and it's kind of atrophied, and, and it's, it's, very, it's weak. One strong, one weak. That's the picture here. When it's raised up, it's hard to understand, but that's what's going on. Why? Because in this Medo-Persian empire, there's a, let's say, a junior partner and a senior partner. The senior partner with the strength and the clout is Persia. And you see it both in the picture of the bear and in the picture of the ram. So the question then comes up now. Doug, you are explaining this, that you're saying the bear is Medo-Persia. Does it say anywhere in chapter 7 that the bear is Medo-Persia? Well, no. I'm looking at the attributes and the kingdom that came after Babylon. Yeah, but it doesn't say it. Well, in chapter 8, when you have in verse 3 or 4, where it describes the ram before it describes the next. Does it say there in, in 3 and 4 that this ram is Persia? No, it doesn't. You're just using these attributes that say, you could be wrong. No, I can't be wrong. Why can I not be wrong? Because then God would be wrong. Because if you look down 
in verse 20 of chapter 8, where Gabriel's explaining it, he says, the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Media and Persia. Now, is there any question? That's why they say that can't be. Daniel couldn't know those things. Even more, he couldn't know the next things that are coming on. But I want you to see that. Now, in verse 4, it says, I saw the ram and no other beast could stand before him, nor was anyone able to rescue him from his power. He became the absolute world controller at the time. No one was able to withstand from Persia's power. He did as he pleased and he magnified himself. Which brings us to verse 5 of chapter 8. And while I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. And he came up to the ram that had the two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal, and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. And I saw him come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him, so he was hurled to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. And the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, but as soon as he was mighty... The large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now, I believe that the male goat represents the empire of Alexander the Great. You notice that the male goat comes from the west, where, in a reference to Persia, the Grecian armies would come. They moved so quickly that his hooves, the hooves of this goat, appeared not to even touch the ground. Now, the goat had a conspicuous horn. Now, it's interesting that this word is a little different in the Hebrew, in its meanings. It can mean conspicuous, meaning to stand out as clearly visible. It can also mean that it has to do with vision. The one who is conspicuous has vision. Did we know anybody who had a military mind who could do things militarily like Alexander? He was maybe one of the top three military minds in the entire history of the world, probably along with Lee and Napoleon, those three. Now, the goat fought with and prevailed over the ram. Why did the goat, why was he able to prevail over the ram? What did he do? It's an important military concept here that you're going to see. He flanked him. If you notice those rams fighting, do they let anybody get to the side? But this goat was so, so fast and nimble, it could flank the ram and attack him from the side. Have you ever studied how a phalanx works? We'll look at that here in just a second. I want you to see that. The goat was unstoppable, and he was pictured... Also in chapter 7, this goat, in chapter 7, verse 6, it says, After I kept looking, and behold, an, another one, another beast, like a leopard. And it had on its back four wings of a bird, and its beast, and the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. In other words, it had the speed, this goat did, of the four wings on its back. Although those four wings will have another additional meaning in just a minute that I'm going to share with you. The text here again does not reveal the reason or the means that the horn was broken, but it was replaced, it says, by four horns. Now, let's talk about that for just a second. It does reveal the reason. What does it say that that horn did? It magnified itself, and if you look, then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, it's verse 8. But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place came up these four conspicuous horns. Now, Alexander was 32 to 33 years old. He was in Babylon, and he'd spent some time crying. Do you know why Alexander was crying? There was no earth left to conquer. He conquered everything there was to conquer. Now, he had conquered the whole world. His kingdom was larger than any kingdom before him. Do we have a map of that, Jerry? 
Yes, you can follow through that, all of his conquests through following those, those lines as he came out of Macedonia. Now, he died at age 32 to 33 in the city of Babylon. There is a disagreement as to the cause of death. There are, among real historians, they're, they're saying, some saying it's alcoholic excess. Excess alcohol, he drank himself to death. Others saying, no, sexually transmitted diseases. That's what caused his death. And then, of course, there's a third group that says both caused his death. Interesting. What do you have? You have a man who could conquer the world, but who could not conquer his lusts. And what does God do? He breaks him. Not going to put up with it anymore. Imagine what Alexander could have, been, could have become if he had been allowed to live the rest of his life. But he didn't. Now, you see, he was able to flank him. Now, here again, people want to say, how do you know for certain that's Greece? And of course, the answer now you know is because Gabriel said it was Greece. In 821, it says the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece. And the large horn, which is between its eyes, the first king. You see, the Grecian Empire really arose circa 334 B.C. It comes from the west. Its speed is its chief advantage. If you consider a phalanx, the Greek army was the most organized of armies in the ancient history of the world. One of the primary reasons for its success was this battlefield formation of a phalanx. The Greek army was dominated by a heavily armed foot soldier it formed the basis of their infantry divisions. When engaging in battle, the phalanx would form in a tight defense and advance toward the enemy. The defense would be held tight by these shields and greaves in the front of the unit, and each soldier would be armed with a long spear, and the first rows would hold them horizontally, and you try to attack. They could even withstand chariot charges, and the formation was protected on its flanks uh, by a lighter infantry and by archer and slingers. And it was always able to outmaneuver the enemy because of the way they could communicate commands. And that's what is being illustrated by this. You look at the Greek culture. The Greek warrior was trained from his youth to be a soldier. The same way American boys want to be a star athlete, Grecian youths wanted to be a great warrior. The complexity and precision from which they fought maybe may not have ever been equaled in history. Of course, their first king was extremely powerful. Alexander was tutored by a man you've heard of before named Aristotle. He succeeded his father, Philip of Macedonia. When Alexander was 20 years old, his father was assassinated and he took over the throne. He spent the next two years putting together this Greek coalition and planning to attack the arch enemy of the Greeks, which were the Persians. He evaded Persia in 334 and 330. He captured the Ecbatana, the capital. Now, I've got, I'm going to tell you right now, this is a lawyer question. Did Alexander have any descendants in which to give the kingdom to after he died? He did? They predeceased him. He did not have any descendants to pass the kingdom on. So who would the kingdom go to? The generals of his army. Now, my favorite lawyer question, how many generals did he have? How many? I hear some people say four and some people say five. So we need to, ha I need to, uh, a roll call's not going to work here. I want to ask everybody who thinks it was four generals, raise your hand. Everybody who thinks it was five generals, raise your hand. Oh, well, it's clear the majority is four. The majorities are always right, correct? He had five generals. But as they were negotiating about what was going to happen, they decided that one of them should be taken out. And so he was killed. And the four decided the kingdom. That general was antagonist who was eliminated from the competition. And so that left four generals, Cassander, Lysimachus, Ptolemy, and Seleucus. Those four. And they divided up the kingdom. You notice these up here are smaller, but they were considered the more important parts. Okay? The more important parts. So, I mean, 
if, if I was one of four generals who was dividing up the United States, what area would I for certain want to make sure was in my section? Texas, Texas you know. <laughs> exactly. So that's the concept here. And Cassandra had Macedonia and these Grecian parts. Lysimachus had uh, Thrace and down here into Asia Minor. That left these two. Ptolemy basically had Egypt and this Middle Eastern area. And Seleucus had Persia, the southern part of Asia Minor or Turkey, and then down through here. Now, as of now, these other two become unimportant. Why? Because they have nothing to do with Israel. And God is all about Israel. And so we are going to, as we go through the rest of this chapter, we're going to be looking at those two kingdoms, the Seleucid kingdom and the Ptolemaic kingdom. And we are going to see what is going to happen. And now, it should give us confidence to rely on the truth and the reliability of the scriptures as to what it says happened because it happened exactly like God predicted. Extra biblical records such as the books of first and second Maccabees and the histories of Flavius Josephus establish a history which is exactly as Daniel predicted it would be. These are reputable historical works. Are they now the Catholic Church would like to tell you that first and second Maccabees are is a part of the Bible and part of the canon? It's not. They're, they're not uh, divinely inspired, but they are accurate historical works, just like Flavius Josephus is and should be considered as that. Now, in our reaction to this vision of Daniel's, and I know we haven't gone through a whole part of it, but we need to look at some things that I think are important. What relationship does this vision have to our country, to our country how would we respond to a vision from God as to America? What if he gave us a vision like this? What if he told us that our leadership would become homosexual? That there'd be a destruction of churches, including ours? A shutting down of the Supreme Court and undermining the judicial system that we have? A persecution of believers and patriots? Suspension of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights? The imposition of martial law and and destruction and takeover, maybe even by a foreign power. How should we, or we should ask ourselves, how would we fare under intense persecution? I think it should create in us a passion to let others know about the one who lives inside of us. There was a time in my life where you would never see that these things could ever happen that I just described. But I am now living in a time where I can see these things happening. And I think most of you can too. You've seen things change faster now than ever in our nation's history. It's amazing, the acceleration of sin in our nation. Now, I want you to, after considering that, I want you to look at the power of God's word. All that Daniel had prophesied concerning the ram and the goat came to pass. Final fulfillment was in 312 B.C., which is about 239 years later. In the writings of Flavius Josephus, he records a special event that I want you to see. As Alexander the Great marched southward towards Egypt, he came across Jerusalem. His normal plan was to destroy and subjugate these countries so they could never be used against him later to attack him from the rear. And he came to Jerusalem. The high priest sought and received an audience with Alexander, the high priest at the time. When he came out, what do you think he had with him? A scroll of Daniel. Exactly right, Kathy. A scroll of the book of Daniel. And he opened up that scroll and he showed Alexander this exact prophecy in chapter 8. Alexander had no difficulty whatsoever concluding that he was the conspicuous horn on the head of the Grecian goat. And as a result, he briefly worshipped the temple of God who gave this prophecy and he granted the Jews the right to practice their ancestral laws and rites of worship of our God. He did that because he saw the reliability of the scriptures and himself. Now, 
They told him that Daniel wrote this in 539. How could he have known about Alexander? I want you to see the reliability of the scriptures and that we, as we are facing what is happening in our nation, must know our prime directive is to spread the gospel as fast and as quickly as we can. Personal evangelism needs to accelerate on the same level that sin is accelerating. That's pretty darn fast. Let's close quickly in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we could spend here today. I thank you for the things that you show us in these passages. I pray, Father, that you'll help me to be faithful in studying so I can explain and show just exactly what you mean in these prophecies. May there not be any confusion in what I say. May I be able to accurately and rightly divide the word of truth so that we can all come to understand the wonder of these prophecies of Daniel as we look at them. I pray all of these things, Father, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and the power of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.